0: Let's get your Bibles out. If you have your Bible with you, you don't have to go very far from the left to the right. It's Genesis chapter 24. If you didn't bring your Bible, you're going to use one in the back of that pew. It is page 17. Everybody, please get your Bible out. Get it in front of you. I see two people right now that are not even trying to get their Bible out. Man, if I wasn't on stage on this camera, I would walk down there. I would open up the Bible and put it right in front of them. you got to get the Word of God in front of you. We are a church that preaches God's word. So let's get that Bible out. Let's get it in front of you. And while you're doing that, let me, let me just kind of set up the stage of where this series is going to go. This is called the Wonder Woman series. Now, some of you chauvinistic pigs are going to hate this series. Wow, I can't believe I just said that. Maybe I should retry that. Some of you men who don't yet appreciate women enough are not going to like this series. Was that a little more gentle? Um, But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by the end of this series, you're going to see how extraordinary women are and what God can do through a woman who will put her faith in him. So I am excited about this series. Uh, This is our summer series through the end of July. It's kind of a superhero series, meant to be fun. And then we're starting the Teen Titans series in August. We're going to look at young people in the Bible that did extraordinary things as well. So if you don't like comic books, by the end of this series, you're going to be a DC and a Marvel fan, both of them. When we look really close at some of these ladies' lives in the Bible, we're going to be in awe. We're going to see God's grace working. Our first Wonder Woman is introduced to us in Genesis 24... And she's going to be the mother of nations, plural. I hope you heard that, two nations. And as with all comic book heroes, we're going to need to stop. We're going to get her origin story. So here we go. We're going to get the origin story of Rebecca. And then we're going to really look at her strengths. And then we're going to round this out because, ladies, I don't want you walking out of here going, I would never be able to compare to Rebecca. She had some deep, deep flaws as well. But yet God still used her. In extraordinary ways. It begins her origin story with a man who is, gasp, 140 years old. His name is Abraham. Can you imagine that? I don't even want to live 140 years in this earth, but uh, Abraham did. His wife, Sarah, I think you're familiar with the story. She died three years before chapter 24 begins. So we've got Abraham. He's now alone. ...or at least without his wife, he has a son. And he has a 40-year-old son. His name is Isaac, and he's a bachelor... So we've got a 140-year-old father, a wife that died three years previous, a 40-year-old bachelor's son. And Abraham has this promise of God in mind that went like this, Genesis 17. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So he's supposed to be having a lot of offspring. He's 40 years old. Now, guys, I want you to just hear something real quick. If you're getting up there in years and you're not married yet, uh, I wouldn't despair. I would just keep putting your faith in God. Let God settle into your soul a peace about singleness and how he can use you, or let him cultivate a desire for a lady to be able to love and to lead and to nurture and to serve. Let let the Lord do all of that. Well, I think in Abraham, God's really rejuvenating that desire. He wants his son Isaac to get married. Because an offspring, a nation, is going to come from him. So here's what Abraham does. He takes his most trusted servant and he says to him I don't want Isaac marrying anybody from the Canaanite region that's where he was living that would be like today saying I don't want my Christian son marrying anybody that's a non-believer okay God's serious about that you're going to hear that probably more than once in this Wonder Woman series Don't be unequally yoked. The Bible is emphatically clear about that. You marry a non-believer Christian, you, I guarantee you, I've done so much marriage counseling, you are in a future of a world of hurt. And God can be gracious and he can use you. He can use you to bring that person to Christ. But often, that person will never come to know Christ. It is an incredibly painful marriage. So Abraham says, I don't want my son marrying a non-believing person from the Canaanite people. I'm going to send you, my most trusted servant, back to where I grew up, back to my people, and I want you to find a wife for my son there. Now, in those days, marriage was prearranged by the parents. Now, I'm, listen, everybody that's not married and young I want to get back to those days. I think that's brilliant. How many of you would want me to arrange your marriage? Come on, be honest. Thank you, Abe. How many of you want me having no input into your marriage? Yeah, you bunch of mm, lovely people. I know that's not true. You don't want me tampering with your marriage? Listen to those prearranged marriages, or the, the parents arranged them in that day. There's a lot of wisdom in Abraham, so he sends this servant back to his people. Find my son a wife, and his servant makes him take an oath, kind of an odd one, but then he promises his servant because, come on, you've got to be thinking about this. The servant's going to be going, I don't. Know, how am I supposed to find a lady for Isaac? And Abraham assures him, look at verse 7, look at verse 40, don't worry about it, an angel is going to go before you. An angel from God will lead, and he's going to help you find a wife for Isaac. Now let's do something really quickly that's sometimes very, very helpful when you're reading the Bible. Let's climb like an airplane to like a 30,000, 40,000 foot view, because you can see a whole lot more landscape, all right? Because we're kind of down in the weeds in chapter 24, Let's get way up. If you want to narratively picture going up on the top of a mountain range so you can see from one valley to the next, whatever, that's fine. But let's get up high and let's look at the landscape of the Bible for a second. Because this is pretty important. See, Abraham is a picture of the Heavenly Father. Theologically, you call it a type. A type points to something greater than itself. Abraham pointed to someone greater than himself, our heavenly father. The servant points to the spirit of God. Isaac points to Jesus Christ. This lady that Isaac's about to marry points to the church. The bride of Christ. You see, this is a really redemptive story that is much bigger than the beautiful romantic story that I'm about to really unveil for you between a, between a woman and a man. And this is greater than that. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. The lady that you're married to, the way that you love her can point people to Christ and the way that Jesus loves the church. And ladies, the way that you love your husbands can point to the way that the church, us, worships, but maybe not, we might not use that word, but the way that the church serves and loves and is affectionate for Jesus. See, marriage is way bigger than this earthly transaction on a wedding day that leads to a life of marriage. It is greater than that. It points to a much bigger transaction between the father who sends the spirit to get a bride for his son Jesus and the church is born. This is magnificent. This is really the view when you get married. If you don't have this view this understanding in your personal marriage, you've got an earthly view that is missing out on blessings that could be Yours. You've got to get your earthly view of marriage way higher. You're about to lo- you're about to see a guy Isaac marry a girl Rebecca, and begin a life together that's going to be representative of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Church. All right. Now I kind of took you up top. Let's get back down. We're going to zoom back down. Get back down the valley. Here we go. We're going to see the servant traveling, chapter 24, in this caravan. Ten camels. And he's going to head north. He's going to get to the tip of the Arabian desert. Then he's going to head east to what we call, well, it's modern-day Iraq. Okay, so think Iraq in your mind. It's a journey of 450 miles. It took probably likely 17 days to make. And all the while, this servant of Abraham is praying, God, Lord, I need you to help me. I need you to make this mission a success. I need you to help me to find a wife for Isaac. So he arrives at at his destination, city of Nahor. And he creates a plan, and he asks God to bless it. Now, that's kind of fun, isn't it? We, We don't do that enough, by the way. In fact, sometimes we think that's kind of audacious. He created a plan. Very simple one, by the way, but very incredible, as you'll see. He creates a plan, and then he says, God, basically, my word's not his. This is the best I've got. I mean, there's not a neon marker here saying that this is the one for Isaac. So here's my plan, and I'm going to ask you to bless it with success. So he stops outside the city. He stops at the water well. Now, let me tell you, the water well was the social center to meet the babes. It really was. I'm not even exaggerating. That's where all the young ladies were. They were at the water well. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that was, that was a boring life. Well, they're there for a, pers- for a reason. Um, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to tell you, wells are like e-harmony today. I'm, not, I'm really not I'm not exaggerating. Over and over in the Bible, that's where guys met future wives. Jacob met his wife at a well. Moses met his wife at a well. Isaac's about to, well, he's not going to meet her at the well, but his servant is going to meet Isaac's wife at the well. So we've got this water well, and you're wondering possibly why are the ladies there? Well, this was the job of the young ladies in the homes to go get the water each day for the family's needs. So they would take a three-gallon leather, I want to say bucket, but it was foldable, flask or skin. And they would take, and they would go down into the well. Usually you walked down into the well. I know in your mind you're probably picturing this rock circular wall with a protective overhang and a crank handle. That's really not what they looked like. You actually circled down into the well, and then you dipped your three-gallon leather Uh, flask into the water and you brought it up and you took it home that was the job of the young maidens the unmarried girls in the family see women getting the water by the way this this endures today in all parts of the world you want to hear something interesting There are Christian and non-Christian organizations that are digging water wells all over the world for uh, indigenous populations and, you know, little towns, whether it's Haiti or Africa. You know what they're discovering in some of these towns? The ladies don't want a water well closer to town. Because they're in a horrific marriage, many of them. And going to the water well, which is usually several kilometers away, mile and a half, three and a half miles, sometimes even up to eight to ten miles. We've heard of stories of that. That journey to the well and back is a way that they're away from their husbands and they're with other women and they can unburden their souls. So there's actually been Christian organizations that have found opposition to digging water wells in their town. The ladies want the journey. But it's still the job in many parts of the world for ladies to get the water for their families. So here comes the servant. Remember, I told you he's got, he has 10 camels. Now, camels, when they are super, super thirsty, when they are out of water, they could drink up to 25 gallons. Okay? They will only drink enough water to replace what they've lost. So we really don't know how much water these camels are about to drink. What we do know is he makes, look at the text, he makes the camels lie down. Now that in itself is a very interesting sight. Newborn camels, they are trained to lie down when they're, just, just when they're born. Here's how they do it. They get them to lie down. They put a blanket over them. And they tie their four feet under their bellies, and then they put this, it's a carpet rather than a blanket, and then they put stones all around the border of the carpet, and they leave the camel like that for 20 days. 20 days. To get them used to being on their bellies. Now, if you've ever ridden a camel, which I have not, but if you've ever seen videos of it, you know it's very, actually, it's very difficult. A lot of Westerns, when they first ride a candle, camel, they get seasick, motion sick, because it's a very lurching motion front to back. So the way that they light a camel down is the camel first goes to its front knees. And then it goes to its back knees, and then its front chest. Imagine sitting on this back and forth, and then its rear haunches. And when it gets up off the ground, it does the exact same thing in reverse. And they train camels to do this. Now, I don't think any of us probably could get on the back of a camel from a standing footstep on the ground. You've got to get them down on the ground to get on them. They're really tall, they're really big. So a trained camel lies down when the master makes them. So the servant makes the camels lie down. I'm telling you all this information so that you can climb inside the story. This is incredibly interesting. He gets them to lie down near the well. Now look at verse 11. At the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he prays. Verse 12. O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Now some of you single guys, you got to learn this prayer. Because whatever you're praying, it's just not working. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your own servant Isaac by this i shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master now i really don't know if this would work today why well, i should be careful with that by the way because david and laura berry from our own church she was a gas station attendant in new jersey David pulls up in his car, she fills his car up with gas, and the next thing I know, they're getting married. So maybe it does work, I don't know. But I don't think you should expect it like this. But you certainly need to be praying, God, show me clearly who is the one that you have appointed for me. Now, do you pray that? Parents, I I don't really know any Christian parents that aren't praying this for their kids. Maybe we should be praying this more. But are you, single person, praying for this? Are you praying, God, show me who you're appointed? Do you know what that word means, appointed one, that phrase? That means God has somebody for you. It's not a lottery pick. You don't just throw the dice and wherever it lands, okay, I guess I'll marry that person. God has somebody for you. There are an alarming number of Christians that don't believe that. Oh, there's 7 billion people on this planet. A lot of them are girls. A lot of them are guys. Okay, all of them are girls or guys. I'm really not into the third gender thing. So, listen, it doesn't really matter. You know what? I'm just going to marry somebody that I find interesting. Well, do you realize theologically that God has an appointed person for you? The servant of Abraham knew this. So he prays, God, show me whom you have appointed. And after praying, verse 16, along comes a young woman, a maiden whom no man had known. That means she's pure. She's not had sex before marriage. That's pretty important for God. Not so important for a lot of us today, but it's extremely important for God. We've got to recover that. This is a big deal in the Bible. And so the servant asked her for a drink. After she had drawn her water, she willingly gave it. Took her leather flask down, gave him a drink, and then on her own. And look at, the, look at Rebecca's character. On her own, she volunteered to water their camels. There's ten of them. Now, remember, I told you. That a camel can drink up to 25 gallons each. That's mathematically, I don't know, 250 gallons. She's got a three-gallon flask. That would be 65 or so trips down into the water well, potentially. But she says, look what verse 19 says. She ran and drew water until they have finished drinking. She said, I'm not just going to give them a bit of water. I'm going to satisfy them. Now, ladies, this is unbelievable character. She didn't need to do this. Hospitality is a very big thing in Eastern culture, Near Eastern culture. Big, big thing. But there is nothing compelling her in their culture to satisfy this man's camels with water. Nothing was compelling her. This was volitional. This was free choice from her. And the man, verse 21, gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So she's beautiful, the Bible says. By the way, I want to tell you this. The Bible typically is prone to understatement. Typically, it's prone to understatement. So when it says that she was very beautiful, listen, she was absolutely gorgeous. So beautiful that the king of Philistines, later on, is going to be smitten by her and want to take her as his wife. Okay, This is a very beautiful lady, inwardly as well as outwardly. She's serving, she's giving of her life, even sacrificially. And all of a sudden we think of Peter's words in 1 Peter 3. And I want you to really hear this because you won't hear this from the world. God says this. You want to know what God finds beautiful, ladies? I'm going to tell you as clear as you can possibly hear it. Do not let your adorning be external. That does not mean don't wear makeup, don't wear jewelry. That's not what Peter's saying. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, it means don't put your confidence in what's external or the clothing you wear. Ladies, is that true of you? This is a tough one. Don't let when you get dressed up, all of a sudden you feel beautiful. I and mean, God's looking way deeper than that. And so aren't godly Christian men. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet, Spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, if a feminist was here and they heard me read that, they would immediately give me a rejoinder. Are you telling me you like when women are quiet? That's not what that means. It doesn't mean vocally quiet, it means a heart at rest, a heart not full of anxiety, a heart not clamoring for attention, a heart that knows their beauty, and a heart that is confident in it. And can live outward rather than self-centered. This is Rebecca. She is stunning to the Lord. She is incredibly beautiful to God. She's pure. She's modest. She's confident. She's polite. She's gracious. She's caring. She's hardworking. She's selfless. She's serving other people. And the servant knew this is the answer to his prayer. But would she say, I will? And go back to Isaac. Well, Rebecca runs home as the story progresses and runs to her family. And this guy, the servant, had given her all these gold bracelets that go on your, between your forearm and your wrist and put a ring in her nose. Yes, that was vogue. That was culturally modern back then. It didn't imply anything but the adornment of a beautiful piece of gold. And she runs back home, and her brother Laban, if you know him from later on in Genesis, not too many more chapters from now, he takes a look at all the gold, and then he runs out to meet the man. He is greedy, he is materialistic, he's looking for a payday. She runs home, he goes, Laban does, to meet this man. Abraham's servant explains his mission to her family, and he asks if he can take Rebekah back to Isaac. And her brother and her father agree. Yes. Likely they're thinking of the dowry. Man, if he just gave her these little tokens just now, wait till the customary dowry comes in. This is going to be a huge payout to our family. They try and they delay, they try to delay her departure, but the servant of Abraham urgently insists, I need to go. I need to get back and accomplish my mission. So I need you to tell me right now, will you let her go? And so they turn to her. Now this is amazing. Ladies, I really want you to picture this. You don't know this Isaac. You've never met him. This is 450 miles away. You are gone from your family. There is no guarantee you will ever see them again. You do not have phone book. You don't have Have a phone, rather, you don't have Facebook, you don't have anything, social media. This is a true disconnect from your family and a binding to another one, very far away. And they turned to her Rebecca, will you go with this man? Do you understand what that means? That means no one forced her. Nobody compelled Rebecca to marry Isaac. She was not coerced. This was completely her free choice. And ladies, you need to know that, right? I mean, I think I'm speaking to the choir. Nobody ever ought to compel you to marry anybody. You ought to be impelled by a love for that person, a sense that God says, this is your appointed husband. But nobody ever coerces you. You can't let that happen. Well, neither did she. And with incredible courage, verse 58, she said to her family three words that must have echoed in that servant's heart. I will go. She takes her maids. They make the long journey, 450 miles. And the moment arrives when she's going to meet Isaac for the very first time. But let me, before I introduce the two of them to you, let me give you a little bit of a background. Names are important, and I want you to know that the name Rebecca means noose. Now, that initially could be a little alarming. It means, it's, her name means a rope that was used to tie up cattle. But when it's applied to a person, it's given to a woman whose beauty will snare a man. So once again, we see this incredible beauty in this woman that has the power to capture and to snare this man, Isaac. Isaac, his name means laughter. Did you know that? His name means laughter. It's something that he was doing very little of since his mother's death three years before. In fact, he's a very brooding, meditative, contemplative man. But that's about to change. He's going to get his laughter back. This is the power, by the way, of a God-ordained marriage. When God marries two people together, there is joy. Not without difficulty. I've said very, very often, marriage is the hardest thing I think you'll probably ever do. But it can give you the greatest joy you will ever experience. So Isaac's going to get his laughter back. She approaches on this camel. They're just about there. And there's a man in the distance standing still at sunset. It says in the evening, at the end of day. And he's gazing at the sunset. What do you think Isaac's doing? Well, you don't need to think too long because verse 63 tells you he went out to meditate in the field toward evening. This is a deep thinker. It's one of the things I love about Isaac. He is an anchor. He's not given to highs and to lows. He is steady. Ladies, you will know if you don't yet the value of having a steady husband. Because when your life is in topsy-turvy mode and it's going all over the place, that anchor can be for you a blessing. He's out, he's meditating, he is thinking, I'm sure, no doubt, reflecting on this servant's mission of finding a wife for him. He lifted up his eyes, verse 63, and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And he does what no master ever did in that culture. He started walking towards them. They always waited for the servants to come to them. Not Isaac, he begins to walk toward them. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She dismounted, the Hebrew word means she sprang off. She's pretty excited at this point. She's asking who that man was. I think she probably knew. The servant tells her that's Isaac, that's your betrothed. And when she learns of that, she puts on her veil. She makes it clear that she is the one. She's got her maiden party with her. She's got other ladies with her from home. She's going to be the only one in a veil. and That means that Isaac, you don't need to wonder which one is it. I mean, you've never seen her before. It's the one in the veil. That's your betrothed. See, the veil was a sign of being promised to a man. Kind of function like an engagement ring today. It's a sign that I'm spoken for. I'm not for consideration for any other man. And by the way, an ancient wedding custom in that day and age was for the bride's veil during the wedding to be taken off of her face... ...and laid onto the shoulders of the groom that was part of the wedding ceremony. And what it symbolized is that he was gladly willing to lead in this marriage. And you might be wondering, how do you know that? Well, you get an allusion to this in Isaiah 9, 6 with Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And that's really what the veil on the shoulder signified. He was taking the glad responsibility to be faithful in leading his wife. Man, we need to do that well. And I want you to notice that Isaac needed no time to decide if he would marry. And the reason is given to us, verse 66, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. In other words, all the things that God had done for us. He heard what God had done. He didn't need to wonder. He didn't need to take a month to consider. If God's going to show the appointed person, who am I to argue? I cannot wait to be married. Now I'm going to teach you something that is incredibly contradictory to our culture. And it's in verse 67. Then Isaac Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. We've got it completely backwards. I mean, in our culture, you got to fall in love, and then that lady becomes your wife. That's just not how it was in the Bible. In the Bible, love was a choice. A love was something you determined to do. You didn't need to emotionally feel in love before you decided to volitionally love. And so they married... And he learned to love her. He made the choice to love her. And that's really what this kind of love is. That's the depth, the most beautiful kind of marital love. Listen, I'm going to tell you, you're not always going to emotionally feel in love with your wife or your your husband. There's going to be days and weeks and sometimes months or seasons where you're going to kind of wonder, what did I do? By the way, that's never happened in my marriage in case my wife hears this. There's going to be times where you're wondering, I don't know if this is really worth it, but this is God's appointed. I made the decision. I will love. This is the power of this kind of love. They married, and Isaac loved her. And he was comforted. And when you get to 26, verse 8, chapter 26, verse 8, all of a sudden you see Isaac's got his laughter back. Because they're outside laughing. And the king of the Philistines sees it and says, wait a minute, Isaac, that's not your sister. That's not just your friend. You don't laugh like that with your sister. That's your wife. Now, if the story ended here, this Wonder Woman would seem to be perfect. Literally, this is a match made in heaven. But Superman has his kryptonite. Wonder Woman, by the way, did you know her weakness? If a man binds her bracelets together, she is as weak as a man. That's how it goes in the comics. But biblical saints, they have their weaknesses too, and we're about to see Rebecca's. And here we go. Life had taken a turn for the worse. She found herself unable to have children. For 20 years of marriage, she's barren. She cannot have kids. And it was wrongly considered in biblical days to be the woman's fault if she couldn't get pregnant. So all of this shame is heaping on her. All of this discouragement and futility and sadness, 20 years passes. That's chapter 25, verse 26. That's where you're going to pick that up. 20 years pass. And now she's past childbearing age. And Isaac Isaac prayed for her, chapter 25, verse 21. If you haven't flipped the page, let's do that. And so Isaac prays for his barren wife, 20 years into marriage. She's obviously struggling greatly. She's past childbearing age. And God answers the prayer and blesses this couple if she's pregnant. But the pregnancy was so difficult that she prayed and asked God, is there something wrong? I could feel them I could feel the baby kicking me over and over. Maybe this isn't right. Maybe there's something unhealthy with the baby. So she prays, and God answers her in chapter 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are within your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so now she's assured by this. She gives birth not to one baby, but to twins. The oldest is Esau. The youngest is Jacob. And Esau, he's the firstborn, which means he is born the heir of two things. Now, by the way, if you don't know this, this is incredibly important for this story. The firstborn was given two privileges. You ready? The birthright and the blessing. Those are distinct. The birthright was a double portion of inheritance. You know why the firstborn was given that? So that he would have even more money... More property in order to make sure that the entire family was taken care of if anyone falls on hard times. If you're in a family and you've got siblings and you get an inheritance, that's part of the biblical mindset. How are the rest of the siblings doing? Maybe you were given more to give. But the blessing, very distinct, was a covenantal act that the father would do, usually when the father was nearing the end of his life. He would pray a prayer of blessing that was covenantal, and God would move on that blessing oftentimes and pour down blessings on that firstborn. Well, we've got Isaac and we've got... Rebecca, they've got their children, and all seems great. But then all of a sudden, cracks begin to emerge in the family, and they become glaringly obvious. Verse 27, chapter 25, the boys are very different. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man in the field. Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. So Esau was at home outdoors. Jacob was at home in the kitchen. Esau was wild. Jacob was domesticated. He liked reading, he liked cooking, he liked meditating, he liked thinking. While Esau, he was a man of action. Just get me out there and get me moving. Very different boys. And soon, Rebecca and Isaac fall into the devastating parental trap of favoritism. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's a really worthwhile reason to love your son. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So we've got solid favoritism now in this family. And the very next thing we see are these differences playing out. So Esau was out hunting. He came home to find Jacob in the kitchen making dinner. He's making a red stew. Jacob had learned his mom's in manipulative ways, and we're about to see from both of them. Esau is famished. He obviously didn't get an animal. He smells Jacob's dinner. He begs for some. And Jacob says, all right, well, I'll give you a bowl of this stew if you sell me your birthright, which is the double inheritance right. Esau's moment of weakness changes the course of his entire future. He agrees. He sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot or a bowl of stew. And though it was prophesied by God that the younger, the older would serve the younger, it doesn't alleviate Esau's guilt for his decision. He continues to make worldly choices. Please listen. Everybody, please listen to what you're about to hear. This is critical. Esau marries two unbelieving women. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Genesis twenty six thirty four. Listen, the consequences... Christian, of marrying an unbeliever, bear beyond your own life into your family's life as well. You know, William Rose Wallace wrote a poem praising motherhood called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle Is the Hand That Rules the World. You probably have heard it, or at least heard of that phrase right there. Well, a mom is indeed influential. But that influence, as we all know, can easily become manipulation and control. And we're about to see that bear out in this family. We've got a weak father in Isaac. We've got a dominant mother now in Rebecca. typical of a lot of families, even in our church. We've got favoritism. We've got bitterness. We've got the prophecy, which probably motivated Rebecca to talk Jacob into deceiving Her own husband, his father, who's now a very old man, nearly blind. He cannot even hardly see. She tells Jacob three times obey my voice, obey my voice, obey my voice. This is an adult child. It leaves him no choice, not that he objected. He protested, but not on moral grounds. He was afraid of getting caught. She says, I want you to dress up in these goat skins, and I want you to go tell your father that it's time to gain your blessing. She wanted Jacob to get the birthright and the blessing, because that's her favorite son. It works. Isaac Did not know he was ignorant. He blesses now Jacob. You cannot take those back. You can't say, God, give me a mulligan. Let me do a do-over. It's done. The blessing is out. Jacob's got the birthright. Jacob's got the blessing. Esau is rightfully, understandably furious. Verse 41 of chapter 27. He's going to murder his brother. Rebecca tells Jacob, you've got to flee. I want you to run to my brother, your uncle Laban, back where I was from, where the servant found me. And I want you to stay there until Esau's wrath has subsided. And then I will send for you and you can come back. Now, moms, I want you to hear me for a moment. Favoritism and manipulation will never, ever end well. It will rob you and your family of blessings. And sadly, the Bible gives no record of Rebecca ever seeing Jacob in this life again. You see, every biblical saint has his or her flaws, and Rebecca is no exception. She was full of faith. She went into the unknown for a man that she never met. She believed that God was leading her. She had a heart sensitive to his voice. She was a mother zealous that her boys marry only believers. She was a wife who stayed with her husband through thick and thin. She was strong. She was independent. She was determined to see God's will done in her family. Yet those same attributes became control and manipulation in her life. She was willing to deceive her husband. Can you imagine that? Willing to deceive her own husband in order to make sure her favorite son got it all. And even willing to take the curse from God. Let the curse fall on me, she said. Let Isaac get mad at me. Let God deal with me. I'll take it for you, son. You're that important to me. That is a skewed, distorted unhealthy love. That's when you love your child more than you love your God. And though Isaac clearly loved her nowhere, did you ever read this, nowhere does the Bible indicate that she had a great love for him. Her life serves as a warning that no parent should ever have a favorite child, that the marital relationship must be strengthened and preserved above all others with honesty and love. And all through Rebecca's life, we see the gracious hand of God, even with her weaknesses. God was still good to her. And the same is true for every single one of us. Where would we be without God's grace? Despite her flaws, God brings from her two nations of people, and through her, one day would come the Savior of the entire world, Jesus Christ. Now, man, I want you to do something, whether you're old or you're young, if you're a teenager or a child, you are a male, I want you to do something right now. I want you to think of the ladies in your life, maybe they're your sisters your moms, your daughters. I want you to think of the ones that God has put in your life for a moment. And I want you to consider seriously, faithfully, to begin praying for them. They are amazing. They have strengths that you will never have. These ladies have beauty that you will never have, men. I will never have it either. And God has put them in your life for a reason. And God's blessings, whether they're your sister, whether they're your mom or your daughter, God's blessings can come through them. He can restore joy to your life. He can bring happiness to your soul. He can bring strength for your journey. But you need to pray for them. Would you commit to do that? And watch these wonderful women in your life prosper. Amen? Let's pray for them right now.